you know, belief in the basic physics that convinced me we could get here and where here we are. Now, there's lots of problems. The world still subsidizes fossil fuels more than we even invest in renewables. We have political systems uh, game so that the rich people of the world, often rich men, will remain that way. Um, but we have a, a world of disruptive, clean, socially just energy options if we would only kind of break away the blinders from the old energy system. And that was Dan Kamen, professor and chair of the Energy and Resources Group at the University of California, Berkeley, Go Bears, and senior advisor for energy at USAID. So welcome to the Power for All podcast. It's a forum for leaders working to end energy poverty. And today I'm your host, Christina Skerka, founder and CEO of Power for All. Power for All is a global campaign of over 300 partners around the world working together to accelerate universal electrification with renewable energy. You can learn more about Power for All on our website at powerforall.org, find us on all the socials, and of course, you can always subscribe to our newsletter. As a 501c3 charitable organization, Power for All depends on the generosity of listeners like you. Please consider supporting our work and check us out at powerforall.org donate. So today, we're going to look at the role of financial innovations driving energy access, particularly in peri-urban and rural communities through pay-as-you-go or pay-go. I can think of fewer people with the breadth and depth of knowledge about renewable uh, renewables and energy than Dan Kamen, someone I've known for over a decade. So uh, let me tell you just a little bit about Dan, and then we'll get into the conversation. So Dan is a scientist, renewable energy expert, and a former aspiring pilot. He currently serves as the Distinguished Professor of Energy in the Energy and Resources Group, or ERG, at the University of California at Berkeley, and holds a dual appointment at the university's ERG Group and the Goldman School of Public Policy. Dan is noted as a coordinating lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which won the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize. So he's a pretty distinguished guy, and we're honored to have him with us on the podcast today. So hi, Dan. Welcome. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, great, great, great to talk to you today. So um, before we get into the sort of depth of the conversation, I always like to hear from our guests a little bit about how you made your way uh, to the position you're in today. You know, we we need more people working in this sector. And one of the questions I get most from people under 25 is, how do I get your job? How do I become like you? And how do I work to end energy poverty? So I'd love to hear about your own career path. Well, I wish I could say it was planned because it certainly wasn't. I grew up um, with a heavy dose of Star Trek, the original series, not all the uh, permutations since, although I do watch them. Um, and I thought I was going to be an astronaut, actually. And so I got my pilot's license and I did all the kind of things you do, lots of physics. Um, but I did not pass the vision test. And so here I am. Um, but my path even after the astronaut um, digression, or maybe not digression, really was about uh, basic laboratory and theoretical physics. But I started to discover more and more really interesting aspects of energy and development, working in Nicaragua, working in Kenya, working in Chile, Indonesia. Um, and so my 
accidental path was certainly one that I recommend to everyone, but I sure can't tell you how to do it because I just kind of went from the most interesting and what felt like the most pressing topic where science and applied math could be useful to the next. Awesome. Tell me you have been to a Star Trek convention. I unfortunately have not been to a Star Trek convention, but I do carry around in my suitcase to all my conference travels a pair of Spock ears because you never know when you're going to need that. Indeed. Well, I myself am also a Trekkie and I have been spied at a, at a convention in the past, but we'll save that for another podcast. <laughs> um, well, before we delve into uh, the focus of the discussion today, um, do tell us a little bit more about your work at Berkeley. Obviously, Power for All has been the beneficiary of uh, your work through many of your students. Uh, coming through our organization. Um, but I would like to hear a little bit um, how you've set up the work at Berkeley, because I do know, uh, you know, there's so much work done with governments, other academic groups, industry, etc. So why don't you just paint the picture for us, and then we'll get into uh, the discussion around finance. Well, I mean, I just want to thank Power for All, because when you say the students that have come through, a number of my students have interned with you, and one of them, Rebecca Shirley, of course, ended up being your director of research. And so if if making human connections and thinking about energy access, energy justice, kind of the gender and racial questions of inequality are finally on the table the way they should be, they certainly weren't in the beginning when... I moved into this field, again, sort of accidentally back in the late 80s and 90s when I was studying cook stoves in Nicaragua and solar ovens and wind turbines um, in very off-grid uh, conditions in Kenya and South Sudan, Nicaragua, Honduras, a variety of places. And for me, the, the path was really one of looking at where the science and material science of new energy could solve pressing problems. And of course, one of them is climate change, but inequality and um, lack of justice and opportunity is really the other. And so for me, the path that worked out at Berkeley was that I was a junior faculty at Princeton working on energy issues, kind of writ large, um, did a lot of work on solar photovoltaic materials. But when I moved to Berkeley and set up um, my laboratory called RAIL, the Renewable and Appropriate Energy Lab, it was a place where kind of the, the oddball student who maybe went to Peace Corps after a degree in physics or something else could find a place to work on that nexus of climate and justice. And so two things happened. One is that I was invited early on to be part of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and I've been working with them since the late 90s. And as you mentioned, we got to share the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize. So that that was pretty cool on a variety of levels, although no check, just a neat badge. Um, but that connected us to high level energy systems planning. And then the other part was doing the most rural off-grid, small scale energy technology where we didn't call it at the time, but I think what that's evolved to be in your language of pay-go, pay-as-you-go, is really the fusion of energy systems and information systems, whether it's smart cell phones or SMS text messages or devices that upload and download your minutes and do mobile banking and pay for your remote solar. So we've done a lot of projects. I've written bills. I've worked with members of the Congress. I've worked with members of the United Nations, 
ministers in Nigeria and Kenya and places to really focus on problems where I felt like there was a not a technical solution, that's really arrogant, but where there was a technical opportunity that if we backed it up with real person-to-person dialogue, we could make advances. And I think we really have. I mean, solar is now cheaper on-grid and off-grid than fossil fuels are. And part of that is due to scaling up and manufacturing, but a lot of it is due to figuring out how to work it into a system that for a long time, and maybe even today, is not bending over backwards to be accommodating for clean energy. And that's really been how my laboratory has picked its projects, written its papers, and my tours into government duty, including right now at USAID, are really all about trying to follow through on those project areas and not just make it about the science and not just make it about the kind of the policy to really try to do both. Hmm. Well, and on that, you know, one of the topics today is obviously innovations and how to make sure they're adopted, scaled up, um, and actually contribute uh, to increasing energy access. So if you had to pick maybe the top, I don't know, two or three lessons from your work over the years, what's important? important to do once you have that technology? How do we support the innovations to to really be adopted and solve the problems they're designed to solve? Well, I guess I liken it a little bit to what people in the private sector think about it as the early stages, kind of angel investing. And angel investing in the Silicon Valley world means, you know, writing that clever early check. But angel investing in my world, because The currency of my realm is not patents or dollars, although maybe it should be, but it's really ideas. And for my mind, what we've tried to do over and over again is to see what we could do differently and then carry it out. And so we've done everything from writing papers, um, going on 60 Minutes, um, appearing with uh, deputy directors of the United Nations to highlight there were new ways to do things that generated a business space, a policy space for clean energy. And whether that's installing the largest uh, wind farm in Sub-Saharan Africa, something I worked on in Kenya for a long time called the Lake Turkana Wind Farm, to working at the mini grid community level and really seeing just a whole range of students launch companies, write papers, become kind of celebrities like Rebecca Shirley, who I mentioned, in terms of speaking up for energy access and gender uh, parity in Africa. All of those types of projects required pushing hard an idea. And I guess it always seems to come back to that really trite thing that you can find when you look up quotes, and that is that you know you have a good idea if everyone in the beginning tells you it's stupid, and then once you've been successful, everyone else tells you it's obvious. Um, and that process sounds a lot more fun than the actual stages of being told that you're an idiot and that this will never work and that um, everything's against it. But, you know, I look at the growth of distributed clean energy in Kenya. I look at the rise of energy storage for the household use in Bangladesh. I look at what's now happening where oil and gas and coal countries like South Africa and Nigeria are now saying they're going to commit to net zero carbon status by mid-century, 2050, 2060. 
those are things that were just not even conceivable a couple decades back. And I really think it's due more to people making connections than it is to any given hardware advance. But there's no question the hardware advance gets a lot of the press. Mm, yeah, it's it's true. And, you know, and, and just building on what you said, I mean, a decade ago, uh, 15 years ago, when the sort of first version of the clean tech revolution started out here on the West Coast, where you and I are both based, I think it was pretty unimaginable that people in developing countries could actually own their own energy um, that wasn't a, a fossil fuel-based substance. Um, and yet today, we we are in a marketplace that's thriving, um, and we're seeing public and private collaborations all over the place um, that are really helping to bring access um, to people without energy. So let's move into that topic now and, and talk a little bit about the need for that energy to be affordable. So, um, you know, we've seen a whole bunch of innovations in the space beyond technology into software, and that really bring, brings us to the topic of Paygo today. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting topic on a lot of different angles, but uh, did you ever think we'd get here? Well, I always thought we'd get here really because when I was in a graduate school course, in electrodynamics, so pretty hard topic um, on the physics side. I had it from uh, a Nobel laureate, Nicholas Blumbergen, amazing uh, guy. And we had this really interesting exchange, and I was a second-year PhD student. Um, and basically, uh, you know, I looked at the, the progress, or what we call now the learning curve, or the Moore's Law of solar, and it was early on, and said, you know, we're, we're physicists, we're theorists, we know how to forecast, this is going to get cheap. And his response was, well, you know, the more intermittent power on the grid, the more impossible it is to manage the grid. And that, that kind of sentiment from a Nobel laureate will stop you in your tracks. But he explained to me his reasoning, and we kind of came to an understanding that he was only talking about very, very traditional grids where very, very dumb levels of control were involved. And just a little bit of thinking about feedback loops and dynamical systems and all the kind of things that physicists like convinced me early on that if the price gets low enough, we will be able to do the same thing for energy storage and different technologies. And here we are. Um, last year, Bloomberg New Energy came up with this great quote that it's now cheaper to build renewable energy projects than to simply operate existing fossil fuel ones. Now, that's easier at large scale on grid, but because the costs to the world's poorest people are so much higher, you know, we think about 10 or 20 cents a kilowatt hour for electricity um, in the US or Europe. But when you look at an off-grid village setting, you can be talking about 40, 50, 60 cents or a dollar per kilowatt hour because of all of the labor and all of the middle people middlemen um, in that process. And so beating those ridiculous costs is something that clean energy is really all about doing. And so I really think it's that kind of, you know, belief in the basic physics that convinced me we could get here and where here we are. Now, there's lots of problems. The world still subsidizes fossil fuels more than we even invest in renewables. We have political systems uh, game so that the rich people of the world, often rich men, will remain that way. Um, but we have a, 
a world of disruptive, clean, socially just energy options if we would only kind of break away the blinders from the old energy system. Yeah. Well, and so one of these challenges that you've, you've just started to hit on here has been that affordability. Um, so the the high cost typically associated, despite the decreases um, overall in the cost of goods um, in this space. And so that led to the development of the PAYGO system, uh, which, of course, you know, really started to get applied to the decentralized renewable sector about a decade ago. Um, I just sort of stepping back, you know, what's your take? What do you see as the strong benefits of the system? What do you think is the downside risk of using something like PAYGO? Well, I don't think there is any downside risk because basically what PAYGO is, is a democratic system to not only see what energy costs, to pay for it as you will in small units. The downside of PAYGO is actually a broader thing, and it's just that the capitalist system is unfair to the poorest people in the world the most. And if you're a poor rural women, woman, that's a triple whammy against you. And that billing systems and credit systems and all these things are really designed to make rich men in cities richer. And so I think that the, there is no inherent downside of PAYGO, but every new thing gets exploited for profit for someone. And the least empowered people are the least able to take advantage. But to my mind, when you look at things like with the advent of secure mobile money in Kenya, the M-Pesa system, we now know definitively that the, 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 the gross national product of Kenya was benefited by 2% just by introducing that. And that's even before you get into the fact that Pago's biggest customer for a long time, the M-Pesa system was distributed solar through the range of companies that came up to provide those products. And now that people get a taste of being a prosumer, you're not just a consumer. When you have excess green energy, you can produce it and sell it. And when you need it, you can buy it. That is not only green, but that's democratic energy. So I don't think there's a downside to pay go at all. But I do think there's lots of people willing to exploit anything new to take advantage of it. And that's what you just have to watch for. Yeah, indeed. And I mean, you're really talking about the importance of financial inclusivity. And it's often hard, uh, if not impossible, um, to get access to these kinds of technologies unless you have a way that you, uh, as a rural poor person, can pay over time. And there is some history there, and I'm not sure if if, uh, you might want to dig into that for a second, but obviously over the history of time, there's always been uh, local approaches to this. There's been saving groups and um, uh, self-help groups in India and that sort of thing that have banned together as communities to uh, provide a, a sort of lending scheme. But anything you want to say about, you know, that and are there, is there room for both? Is there room for both the technology solution of working with something like an M-Pesa for pay-as-you-go and also uh, the opportunity to use SACOs or, or other types of lending instruments to help get people access to energy that they can own? Well, I think it's probably because I'm a physicist, not a financial person, that I actually regard this as a pretty simple equation in the sense that the way we buy and sell energy, whether you're a, you're a big customer on grid or you're a small customer in a village, 
for decades was the same. And that is, it was a one-way flow of energy to you. And it was a one-way flow of money from you to them. And there was no flow of information. And as a kind of a data science physicist type, I review each, view each of those things. They could, should, and now can be two-way. So you can buy power or sell power. You each should have full access to information. And the fact that whenever I see someone looking at, the, at their app, whether it's for their Tesla or they're looking at the app on their phone for looking how much uh, money they have received because they were able to have their demand for energy curtailed by the local utility or they sold power back from their battery system. Again, whether you're in a village in South Sudan or whether you are in um, you know, a home in Berkeley, California, that's the same story. And so if information, money, and energy can flow both ways and both sides have full access to that information, to my mind, that's this kind of democratic clean energy. And I know that makes it sound way too simple. You need financial intermediaries. You need people to, to do credit, whether it's a Grameen bank, a micro lender, or an aggregator like a new resources bank. Um, but these are all basically tools to go from the old world to the new world. And if you think about it, we need a lot of them because... The challenge of renewable energy, if you get rid of all of the shady dealings and biases in our energy system, is really just that we're used to um, paying for energy as you go. But when you buy clean energy or energy efficiency, you're buying all that energy up front. So we need mechanisms to spread out the cost, to amortize it. And we need banks to do loan guarantees. And all of these things are basically tools to convert from a very, very static system to one where there are real-time transactions. And to my mind, the currency of this new energy economy is energy available as much as you want when you need it, being efficient. It needs to be as green as possible. And the hardest one is that it needs to be as justly distributed as possible. Um, and that's the hard one because we as humans seem to have this tendency to, in any system, find a way to maximize profit for the few, not services for the many. Yeah, I really, I, you know, that lands, I think, in a really important part of this discussion. Um, you, you know, we saw such a change in the energy efficiency marketplace in the United States because we found a way to deal with first costs, right? There were, you know, upstream government incentives, downstreams, et cetera. So, um, and we don't quite seem to have that mix um, entirely right yet in this new and evolving sector. But I, I think sort of stepping back and looking at this more from a meta kind of point of view is, you know, what is the role of the private sector in delivering a public good like energy? What's your take on that? Well, so, I mean, you know, one could wax really philosophical and talk about Piketty and the rise of capitalism and this and that. But I guess, to my mind, it comes back to something that I used to read all the time in Revolutionary Worker Weekly. And that is that we don't like to say it, but we design our financial and our business systems so that we have socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor that we lend money and resources and insider trading and all kinds of subsidies to the rich. And then we turn around and say the poor should do it all in the quote unquote free market, which is neither free nor market. 
And so when I look at our choices in energy, clean energy is the black swan. It's the disruptor that allows us to turn that over. And to my mind, that's what's so interesting and seductive. And that's why when I see yet another subsidy for a fossil fuel plant or people using the crisis in Ukraine as a reason to uh, invest more in fossil as opposed to renewables, I'm just over and over again reminded to the degree to which change is hard and providing democratic and just services seems to be the thing that we have so many barriers against, but clean energy is all about that. It is about a mixture of generating with low footprint, generating with maximum services to individuals or companies, um, and marrying energy storage with energy generation and as easy and low cost a transaction system. And that's really what PayGo is about, whether, again, you're thinking about you know, individual electrons for your solar home system, or whether you're looking at um, power coming out of a gigawatt scale solar or wind farm in the desert somewhere. Right. Just just a few more questions, and then we'll wrap up. But, you, you know, just getting to the topics that you've raised about how the system isn't really set up for inclusion or for consumer protection. Um, when it comes to things like PAYGO, do you have a thought uh, or two about how we can create a conducive environment? And I mean, we, the global we, in terms of actors in the global energy sector, um, a conducive environment to enable the solar companies that, that so many of the governments are leaning on and actually carving out sections of their national energy policy for companies to deliver on their access targets. Is there some way to create a conducive environment for those companies while also protecting consumers? Yeah, no, I, I think we're seeing them already. So we are seeing countries, big and small, committing to what is currently being called net zero world, which is probably not a great name. But the idea is that, you know, a Nigeria or a South Africa, an oil and gas and a coal dependent country are committing to this transition. But it, by doing so, they're demanding the jobs stay domestic. And since there's more jobs in renewable energy than fossil, there's a good basis for that. But they're also demanding international partnerships in terms of expertise and funding. And the more you do that, the more you find that clean energy systems and really the you know ease of transaction of smart money for smart energy, smart green energy, really enables something that we thought was going to be very difficult. Now, we're making it hard. Don't get me wrong. I don't think this is happening easily. But there's no rooftop. There's no vehicle that can't be both a, a demand for energy, green energy, and a supplier of green energy. Now that we're seeing um, vehicles that are so-called vehicle-to-grid, um, EV-to-grid, we're seeing homes and businesses that can generate power from their clean energy system and track it with smart um, smart algorithms and sell it back. That's really the world of a an equitable green energy market. And we developed our institutions for a different energy system, for a much more top-down one. But the benefits there are very high and the tools need to get better but there's no critical tool we're lacking today. So we can't say, 
we we can do this once something happens. It's not when when batteries get ten times better or ten times cheaper or sensors get better. We can do this now. We are just mired in thinking about the world that was not about these benefits of clean energy going forward. And so when you see a village um, or you see a town like Goma in the Congo um, developing a so-called metro grid that is powered with a solar energy field, powers health clinics, schools, businesses, and then suddenly um, Africa's oldest national park, Virunga, um, 30 miles away, says, well, we can increase your supply of clean energy by stringing a power line to sell um, hydro from our micro hydro systems. That's a system that all of the pieces are in place. And I just think we need to be much more responsive to the financial tools and policy mechanisms that world needs. But we're just not there yet in terms of thinking about those kinds of clean energy systems first. We think about them second right now. Mm, yeah. Well, look, um, just a, a sort of final wrap up question and almost circling back to the beginning of our conversation. Um, but look, you and I have been working in this sector for, God, a quarter of a century, plus or minus. Right. And, um, you know, certainly there was never a conversation uh, back then about energy equity and what that means. And, you know, sure, there's been things like lifeline tariffs and, and whatnot around, but we haven't had such a step change, at least that I've observed in my career, um, in the way that we talk about things such as a just transition. Um, so, you know, just sort of in summary, maybe pulling together this, this whole conversation, um, how is this new dialogue, right, which is a long time coming, but that puts social justice and racial justice at the center of the discussion on climate change? What's next in that evolution? What is that going to lead to? You know, if you had to get out your crystal ball, look ahead, you know, five years in the future, how is, you know, all the noise all of us are making now going to change the way energy is delivered in the next five to 10 years? Well, I, I think this kind of goes back to this kind of famous futurist quote, if we go back to our Star Trek um, comments in the beginning, and that is the future is already here. It's just not equitably distributed. And when I look at the hardware story you and I have been talking about, I don't think there's any piece of that system that is missing. Yeah, we want solar to get cheaper and batteries, but that's, that's just incremental technological progress. But the barrier right now is that we do not value uh, justice and diversity and gender equity and tribal equity. And we could wait and bemoan what it's going to take to get there. Or we could actually look at the fact that last January, President Biden already said one mechanism to do so. His first full day in office, he said, I'm passing an executive order. And it's an executive order for the social cost of carbon. It doesn't take every single damage due to climate change and every single racial um, injustice into account, but it's a better metric than what we're using now. And so instead of thinking about the, the market price, the cap and trade price, the carbon tax price, the cap and dividend price, those are all fine tools. But the social cost of carbon is an effort to quantify how unjust and how damaging to people and particular black and brown people and women are um, in the system and to correct for that. And I think that if we 
if we just did some version of a social cost of carbon or some other tool, because everyone has their own favorite tool, and we started to value clean energy for the benefits it brings, and we started to penalize fossil energy for the harm it causes, we would actually be very close to a full solution. It's always going to be something else. We haven't talked today about the materials issues, the injustice over cobalt and various things. But if we valued good and we penalized bad, we would get much closer. And right now we're still hanging on to a system that ironically penalizes the good and values the bad in terms of if you dump your pollution into a river or the atmosphere. We reward that today as opposed to penalizing. Mm, yeah. Well, Dan, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. I always have fun and uh, feel more optimistic after even a 10 or 15 minute discussion. So you can imagine how I feel right now after 30 minutes. <laughs> but yeah, thank you. And thank you all for listening. Um, a reminder to our listeners that you can find a wealth of sector news, analysis, and data on our website, powerforall.org, as well as the platform for energy access knowledge, or PEAK. You can also sign up to receive our monthly newsletter. And if you'd like to support our work, you can always make a donation via powerforall.org donate. Until next time on the Power for All podcast. <laughs>